All right. Well, today's our sermon is called uh, The Servant is Empowered. The Servant is Empowered. And you'll see why in just a minute. In the book of Revelation, we see a glimpse into heaven. And when, when God opens up the sky and lets us see into heaven, what we see is there's a throne which God himself sits on. And around that throne are four angels. And those four angels each have four different faces. You also see a glimpse of that in the book of Ezekiel. And those four faces are each different. There is the face of a lion, the face of an ox, the face of a man, and the face of an eagle. And when you read the book of Revelation, you think, that is really weird. Why would there be these weird angels with weird faces around the throne of God? Well, the church fathers, the, the, the pastors that were around 2,000 years ago, they helped us to understand why there were these faces. And they taught us that these faces each represent Jesus. Okay? So you have the lion, the ox, the man, and the eagle. Can you show those pictures? So these are some old, you know, RD things, carvings and stuff uh, of, of this image. And you can see, like, there's the man, the the ox, the lion, and the eagle, the angels with these different faces. And, um, and you see them all throughout history. And these each represent Jesus in a different way. So Jesus is seen as um, an eagle. He's described as an eagle. He's described as a lion. He's described as a man. And he's described as an ox. And the really cool thing is that just doesn't describe Jesus but it, each one describes one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So Matthew shows Jesus as the king of Israel. Every time you see Jesus, he's presented as the king. And which, which one of these animals do you think would be a king? Lion, right? Mufasa, right? Right? Good Disney quote right there. Okay, so... The, Matthew presents him as a king. Mark is going to present him as an ox, which is a servant. Mark, what we're going to study, is going to present Jesus as the servant of God and man. Luke presents God or presents Jesus as a man. He's called the Son of Man hundreds of times in that book, and it shows that he was fully human. Uh, Luke is re- he was a doctor and he was really interested in the humanity of Jesus. And then the book of John presents Jesus as God, which is the eagle. Eagles represent divine things in the Bible. And so the book of John would represent him as the son of God. So Mark is all about Jesus serving God and man, that he is the perfect servant or workman. And that's why he picks an ox. God picks an ox. Uh, oxes, I guess, you know, if you're a farmer, oxes were really helpful to help you in your jobs, your, your serving, right? And I never hear any say, that guy's weak as an ox. You don't hear that, right? What do you hear? Strong as an ox, Strong as an ox right? An ox is something that is empowered to serve. They are strong. So, empowered Servant is what Jesus is going to be presented as in this book. Man was created to serve God. That's why you were created. 
And that's why anything you ever do in this life that is not serving God will disappoint you, will leave you dry, and will leave you thirsting for more, leave you unsatisfied. Because God just made you to be his servant. But we never fulfilled that role. So, Jesus, when he came as a man, he came as a servant, the perfect servant that every man was supposed to be. So, in other words, Jesus' life offers God the service that our lives were supposed to offer him. He actually fulfills all the requirements that God had on man. So in other words, the standard God had for your life was this high of, of all that you should offer him, of worship and service and, and, and doing as he commanded. And Jesus, he actually fulfilled all of those requirements. And today, we are going to learn and we're going to see the power that Jesus was given to serve the way that he served. How was Jesus able to do that? So we're, we, let's, let's think of a few questions to get our minds going as we get into this. How am I supposed to serve God today? Like, how do I, like, it seems like such an impossible task. How am I supposed to honor God? How can I serve good enough for God? I mean, I have some dreams, I have some thoughts, but I mean, it really seems like God really wants like a missionary who's going to give their life being burned on a, you know, that's what would really make him happy. And I just don't have that in me right now. Or maybe I should, but I, I just feel so insufficient. What is God really looking for in a servant? What is God really looking for in a servant? I was talking with Vicky about this before church started, and she gave me wisdom. Anyone know the Bible says with, with gray hair is wisdom, right? <laughs> and you have beautiful gray hair, so... I'll take what you say is wisdom. And, and Vicky told me, that's right. Vicky told me today that a servant takes orders. A servant is not trying to earn their way. Do you see the difference between those two? A servant does take orders, but a servant is, isn't trying to progress by their own efforts. They're submissive to what their master says. I really like that. So I got a story for you guys. In the, it, there was a seminary class, and Herbert Jackson, Jackson was uh, a new missionary, and he was assigned a car uh, that, that would not start without a push. Okay? okay? So imagine, like, here's a car, but it won't start. So after pondering his problem, he devised a plan. And his plan, uh, he went to the school near his home, and he got permission to take the children out of their class, and uh, had them push his car off. And as he made his rounds, you know, his missionary stuff that he was doing, uh, he would either park on a hill or he would leave the engine running, right? Some, some good planning, right? Um, and he used this ingenious procedure for two years. And then he got sick and it was time for him and his family to leave. And a new missionary came to that station when Jackson proudly began explaining his arrangement for getting the car started, the new missionary began to look under the hood. 
And before the explanation was complete and the missionary was done explaining all the hills that he had to park on and all the, the different ways he had to get around this problem, the new missionary interrupted him and said, Why, Dr. Jackson, I believe that the trouble is this loose cable. And he gave the cable a twist, turned the key, and it started right up to Dr. Jackson's astonishment. And if you think about that story, two years of needless trouble became routine in this guy's life. Instead of just fixing the problem, the power was there all the time for him. The only loose connection kept this missionary from putting that power to work. He wasn't connected to the power source. And that is an awesome illustration about what we're going to learn today about Jesus. Jesus is not into wasting his time. He is going to teach us, and we're going to learn today, that he will plug into the power source so that the things he does will be empowered by the right source. And then he can accomplish all the serving, all the work that he's going to need to do. He's going to accomplish it. We're going to see that through the rest of the book. So let's begin in chapter 1, verse 1. It says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This book is so much different than the other books, the other gospels. This one has no genealogy like Matthew and Luke both spend chapters and so much time on genealogy. This one just gets right down to business, okay? So this book... The Gospel of Matthew is amazing because it was written probably, Mark, I said Matthew, thank you for the weird look, appreciate that. <laughs> the book of Mark is amazing because it was probably written within 20 years of Jesus' death. 20 years. Can you remember what was happening 20 years ago? The Broncos won the Super Bowl again. Amen. And I remember it like it was yesterday. I remember the details right now. But um, 20 years is not that long. And, um, and this book of Mark is the story of Jesus' life as told from Peter's perspective. So Mark, John Mark, the author, he, he puts his name on it and he wrote it. But basically, this is kind of like an interview of Peter. And all the stories are told from Peter's point of view, Peter's perspective. Remember, Peter was that big old mistake-prone disciple of Jesus. So if you like to make mistakes, this book might be for you. And the reason why he wrote a gospel of Jesus is because the world needed to know who Jesus was. It had been 20 years, so the news about Jesus had gone all around the world. But there was all kinds of different ideas of who Jesus was. So some people over here thought that Jesus was just a spirit that came. And some people over here thought he was just a crazy guy. And some people over here thought this and that. And there was all these various opinions. And so Mark decided to write a book with the clear purpose of showing exactly who Jesus is. And he calls it a gospel. Because... Gospel means good news, and Mark was really excited in sharing with everybody this good news of who Jesus really is. 
Some people's version of Jesus is not good news. Some people have this version of Jesus where Jesus is the old man up in heaven with lightning bolts ready to, to skewer them whenever they step out of line. Has anyone ever had that viewpoint of Jesus? Fear-based? Mm, yeah. And we tend to kind of gravitate towards that because a lot of times our dads were like that. Or that's how we think of authority. And Jesus is a king. He's, authority, he's, he's the authority. So he must be mean. He must be looking for how he can cut us out. But what we learn about Jesus is much better news than that. He's looking at how he can cut you in. He's looking for how he can minister to you, how he can love you, how he can serve you. And that's why we have this picture of this ox on here. And we're going to be thinking about it all the time because Mark does a masterful job of showing Jesus and how he wants to serve you. And he puts the ball in your court and says, do you then want Jesus to serve you? He's going to come and and ask that question to Peter. Peter, you want me to wash your feet? and, And that question is going to be presented to you as we go through this book. Over and over, Jesus is going to say, I'm here to serve you. I'm strong enough to serve you. I'm willing but do you want me? Do you know me as a servant? Do you want me to serve? So uh, we're going to be learning about who Jesus really is. That's what Mark wanted to express, who Jesus is. So we're going to see story after story after story that seem somewhat disconnected when you, when you read them all real quickly. But when we see each one individually, we're going to see that every story, it leaves the person asking, who is Jesus? And in each story, someone decides, I think I know who Jesus is. And they'll make a statement or or we'll find out from their actions who they think Jesus is. And Mark is just presenting these stories like, like an assault rifle, just boom, 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 boom. Story after story, this is what this person thinks he is. This is what this person thinks he is. But is that really who he is? And in the middle of the book, we're going to get to a verse where Jesus comes straight out to Peter and he says, Peter, who do you think I am? And that is the turning point in this book where the stories about who Jesus is stop. And from that moment on, Jesus shows us who he is. And it's very different from the first half of the book. The second half of the book, uh, after chapter 8, Jesus says, this is who I am. And then we have story after story after story about Jesus serving in crazy ways. Ways that people don't understand, ways that don't make sense, serving. And that's how Jesus is presented and wants to present himself in this book. So people would say, okay, Jesus is the Son of God, but what does that really mean? People people, um, toss those words around. Jesus is the Son of God uh, so much that they may, in our day today, our world, they may have lost the wonder and the scandalous meaning of those words, the Son of God. And we're, we're going to um, look at that. What does it mean that he's the Son of God? In Mark, that means that he's the perfect, obedient servant of God. Always doing what God wills. That's what a Son of God is. 
always doing what God wills. With all his heart and with all his soul, Jesus wants the same things that his Father wants. So as the Son of God, Jesus is going to serve God and he's going to serve man by giving his life as a substitute and as an offering for us. That's what it's going to mean to be the Son of God. Sacrificial love. Sacrificial love. But nobody knows that about Jesus right now. In, in this time, when Mark is written, it's, it's misunderstood what Jesus did and why he did it and how that showed who he was. So all around the world, people have opinions and preconceived notions about who Jesus is and what it means that he was a son of God. And Mark is going to clear it all up and say, this is what it means. So let's look at the first story uh, that will give us a glimpse of who Jesus really is. And we start with John the Baptist. So Mark chapter 1, verse 2 says, and, and it was written in the prophets, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So Mark gets right into the story, and he gives us God's perspective. So God gave this prophecy to Isaiah way long ago. And it was God's perspective on, on what was going on right here on John the Baptist. And God says that John the Baptist was a prophet and a messenger sent from God. That's who he was. And he was sent for a couple of reasons, to prepare the way for God. Or he said here, prepare the way of the Lord. But the word Lord in Isaiah is Yahweh. So if John the Baptist was preparing the way for Yahweh and Jesus shows up, who is Jesus? Right. He is God. That's what that means. And John the Baptist, it says, where would he be? In the wilderness. John the Baptist wasn't a real estate mogul who decided that the wilderness was the next Lodo. And he wanted to invest out there. He moved to the wilderness because God prophesied that he should be in the wilderness. Why? Why? What does the wilderness make you think of? What? Moses and... Yeah, the Israelites wandering around in the wilderness. Wandering in the wilderness. The children of Israel lost and confused and not getting the right way. There's a, that's the reason why John was out there, on purpose, because the children of Israel in this day had lost their way spiritually. I mean, they were in the nation of Israel, but spiritually they were walking around a desert, dry as, all, as you could be, the people were lost and they were weary. And so John the Baptist is a voice crying out in the wilderness because God cares about them. He's not like, well, they've left me. Shouldn't have left me. So, see ya. Peace. I'm out of here. No, God loves his people. And so he sends John the Baptist as a voice to prepare the way for the salvation that these people need. So, um, 
They needed God to come and rescue them. And John is like the guy who's getting the people ready to be rescued from their confusion and aimless life. He's like the guy who builds the road for the people to follow, to get out of the desert. That's what John the Baptist is like. How does he do that? Well, let's read the next section. John came baptizing, that's how, in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance. What kind of baptism? A baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So John was God's messenger to help people know Jesus. He's preparing the way for who? For who? For Jesus, for God, right? And he, he wants people to know who God is. And how does he do it? He does this by baptizing them. And this was something that they knew about. Baptism was something that, that everyone in Israel knew about. You were baptized the, uh, in that day to identify with God. But most people, had, these people had never been baptized. Because you know who was most often baptized in this day? Gentiles. Gentiles who wanted to become Jews. Those are the people that were baptized the most often. The people who wanted to say, I'm on God's team. If that means I got to become a Jew, then so be it. I'll become a Jew. I want to be on God's team. I choose God. The Gentiles did this when they chose God. But John the Baptist comes along and says, you Jews, you need to choose God too. And that resonated with some people. The people who were lost, symbolically wandering the desert. John the Baptist is like, you guys, you need God. And many people, it says, went out to him and says, yes, I need God. But John's baptism was a bit different than the baptism of, of, of Gentiles becoming Jews. It was a baptism we're told here, of repentance. John told the people that if they wanted to be forgiven, they would need to confess their sins. He was not saying that confession is what saved them. He was saying confession would get them on the road to being saved. Confession would get them on the road. Remember, John is a road builder. He's not the guy that actually is going to save them. He's just the road builder. And he says, come out here and acknowledge how much you need God and how much you've done wrong. And that gets you on the road that will eventually lead to the promised land where you will get saved. Jesus would have to be the one that would save them. The, um, and the people came out to John and did this. That means that God was showing many people in their hearts, their need to be saved. And people wanted to be forgiven. All those are great things. And so they were taking the first step on this road to, con- to, uh, to salvation, which was confessing sin. So I want you to, to just close your eyes and picture this scene, okay? You got a hot desert, you know, everyone's sweating. You got a dirty river. You got a crazy guy with crazy eyes. And we'll see he's wearing camel hair and big old beard and honey and bug parts in his beard, and he's just yelling at everybody. 
You've got to confess your sins. And people are so desperate to change, they're so desperate for God that they're actually showing up saying, yes, I am guilty, I need to change. People are coming from all around, people you don't know, but they're all part of your big family. They're all confessing horrible things that they've done. And you're like, ugh, what'd you do? But they're confessing it. And this person, what did you do? And this, this atmosphere of confession and need was growing and growing until people were saying, you know what, maybe I've done that too. And then they started confessing. And, and all of a sudden you have this atmosphere where we need God. We need him so much. Everything people have ever done is just out there. This is who I am. I am not making, I'm not trying to impress anybody. Why would I come to the desert to impress someone? I wouldn't. Now it says this. Now John was clothed with camel hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. That means John had nothing to offer you. He was just saying, you all are a bunch of sinners. And the road out of here is confession. But he ate, uh, the fact that he ate locusts and wild honey is, it shows that he was poor and he had nothing that he was giving them. He was just scrounging around for what he was eating. And the part about him wearing a leather belt is crazy because the Bible doesn't waste any words, guys. This part about him having a leather belt makes us immediately think of another guy we've heard of in the Old Testament. Anybody have an idea of who? The Bible says another guy wore a leather belt, and that was in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, and he was a prophet, another crazy prophet named Elijah. And in 2 Kings 1, 8, it says, So they answered him, a hairy man wearing a leather belt around his waist. And he said, No, oh, that's Elijah the Tishbite. <laughs> Elijah's just this crazy guy. And John the Baptist, I guess it was like Comic-Con of the day. It was his favorite Bible character. He wanted to act like him and be like him. In fact, the Spirit of God says later, John was Elijah. He, he did the same exact thing as Elijah did. Jesus says later, John the Baptist was directly associated with Elijah in their ministries. They were calling people to repent. Elijah, back in the day with Israel, saying, you got to repent. And today, John the Baptist doing the exact same thing calling out sinners to come back to God. Come back to God. Which starts with just admitting what we've done, confessing what we've done. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This was the message of John. So all the time he was baptizing, he was saying the same thing. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah is glorious. He is awesome. He is God. He's the king. He is the only one who will be sufficient to save us. Did you catch that in there? He said, I baptize you with water. He's the one that's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's the only one who will be sufficient. We're going to bring that back up and talk about it at the close of our, our time here today. But the, the most important thing that he's talking about is, is he's saying, guys, when this Messiah comes, he deserves to be served. And I'm not even worthy to serve him. 
He deserves to be served, but I am not worthy to serve him. He's going to be perfect. He should be honored. He will be all in all, and we are going to need to bow down when we see him and serve him. John's kind of going over the top here, and Mark is, is laying it on thick so that we see the next verse and the absolute crazy irony of Jesus coming as a servant. The Babylonian Talmud says this rule for the, for the Jewish uh, teachers. He says, all services which a slave does for his master, a pupil should do for his teacher. So, if I'm your teacher, you should all serve me as my slaves. Except, it says for this one thing, undoing his shoes. So a slave had to do that because they had to do everything their master said. But if you were a a pupil learning from a teacher, he says, you don't have to do that. Well, that's what John the Baptist is referencing right here. He's saying, I'm not even worthy to study under the Messiah. I should just, I'm not even worthy, I should just be a slave. Because that's the only person that, that I see myself at, in in relationship with how great the Messiah is. This is what John the Baptist knew of God. That God was coming and we better say we're sorry. You better say you're sorry. Because God is coming. So Jesus does come and what happens? Jesus comes and he's going to be baptized in the next verse. And I want you to consider the irony of this. John said that Jesus was too cool to be served by us sinners. But Jesus comes and gets baptized like a sinner. That is bizarre. That's crazy. And, and we see in other Gospels that John, that John protests, and John's like, this is not, this is, I am not going to do this, I'm not worthy. But here, Mark just throws it out there and is like, what do you think of that? He's the high and lofty one. He's God. And yet he comes here and he gets baptized like a common riffraff like you. And that is shocking. And the the people who are reading this for the first time, who've been hearing about Jesus, they're reading this like, what? That is crazy. Why would God be baptized? Let's read the text. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. It gets worse than just Jesus was a stinking sinner. Like, that's what... That's what this is presenting, that he's identifying with sinners. It says he was from Nazareth. And Nazareth was a place, like we would think, like mm, Pueblo or Greeley. Like some, what, what good could come out of Greeley, right? I'm from Greeley, so watch yourself. <laughs> Nazareth was an, an unimportant city from an unimportant area in Galilee, and that's how, what Jesus is identifying himself with. Hey, you think you're unimportant in this world? Then I'm for you. I represent you. You think nobody thinks about you and nobody thinks anything good can come from you? Great, I represent you. I'm taking that name upon myself, Jesus of Nazareth. It's not like, like today we hear Jesus of Nazareth and like, like 50 churches in this city are named that, right? 
So it's a popular name today. But back then, it was a crummy place to be from. There's nothing good there. That was its reputation. So Jesus was humble. And that's what a servant is. He didn't need to be from somewhere cool. In fact, he becomes known as Jesus of Nazareth. He identifies with people who don't have anything to offer. Well, you know, Jesus sounds cool, but what do I have to offer him? Jesus says, wrong question. It's not about what you have to offer me. Look at what I have to offer you. The life, the spirit, the joy. So, um, John thought Jesus was from heaven, which surely is not Nazareth, right? But, and he is from heaven. But now Nazareth is his home. And again, just look at the irony that's being presented to us. Complete contrast. And then Jesus was baptized. Why? Did Jesus sin? Did he need to be baptized? Did he confess any sin when he was baptized? No. He was simply identifying with the whole human race because we are a bunch of sinners. And he said, I'm going to get in this boat with you. It doesn't make him a sinner. He's just saying, I love you. And I'm identifying with you. He's showing that he is here for you. John thought that he was here to serve Jesus, but Jesus turns it around in one verse in the book of Mark and he says, I am here to serve you. We're not interested, me and the Father, on you serving us yet because first I have to serve you. Jesus is showing that he's here to serve, that he's here to do God's will and accomplish God's plan. So what does God think of that? What does God think of this whole scheme of, of Jesus being a servant, being a, an ox? Look what it says. Immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the spirit descending upon him like a dove. And then a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So God the Father rips open heaven so everyone can know that he is on board with this plan. God not only approves, I saw that in there, that God approves of Jesus' plan to serve people, but look at this, God also supplies the resources for serving him. He supplies, what did he supply? The Spirit, right? Like a dove, it came down. And, and Jesus, or God supplied Jesus with the resources, the living resource that Jesus would need to serve God. When I say resources, I think of oil in a barrel, right? This, this, I don't know why, but that's like economy, resources, that's what I think of. Money, which is static, it's not alive. But what Jesus gets here is like a million times better because it's a living resource, make you think of in the future when Jesus looks around and he says, hey, if any one of you ask, I will give you living waters and out of your heart will flow these living waters. And this he spoke concerning the Holy Spirit. It's amazing how this works together. So then God says, you're my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. A son is supposed to be like his father. When, uh, <laughs> when you have a business as a dad 
and you employ your son. People call it nepotism sometimes, right? But back in the day, when you, when you brought your son in and, and you made your son take over your company, that was the safest way to know that things would happen the same way you did them. And so people who dealt with your company, they really liked it when a son took over from their father because they knew things would happen the same way, that they would be trustworthy the same way as the father. A son is supposed to have the same manners as his father. A son is supposed to have the same language as his father. A son is supposed to care about the same things in the same way that the father does. That's why a father would feel comfortable handing the family business off to their son. A son can represent their father in all things. He can represent him. A father can send his son out, and it's the same as sending himself out. Like in a battle or in some transaction, oh, his son's here and he's going to sign for the family business. That's how it's supposed to work. And God here, he lets us in on that relationship and he is bursting with joy, so proud of his obedient son. A son who's ready to serve because that's who God really is, a sacrificially loving God who desires to serve you and love you and provide for you. That is who God is. Jesus, I'm ready. God's like, this is so awesome. I'm so, oh, I love you so much. You represent what's in here, right here. And it's right there in bodily form. You give it to the people the way that I would give it to them. I love it. And so Jesus is going to sacrificially love every step of the way through the living resource of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to drill down as we close our, our time today in two verses that we looked at, but we're going to drill down into them. The first one is where um, John the Baptist said, I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And here we see John confesses his own insufficiency to really save anyone. He saw that the sin was, was just too great for water to wash away. There was absolutely no earthly power that could really make a difference in the lives of all these people who were coming out to the desert, who were confessing their need. They were still in the desert. Even, even if you said they were on the road to salvation, they're not there yet because confession does not save. No matter how much they confess, no matter how much they desire to be clean, no matter how much they try to wash off in the Jordan River, no matter how much they commit to live a better life, it was all insufficient is what John just said. I baptize you with water, but that's not going to work. You guys are dirty. What you need is a whole new life. You need to die and be resurrected. You need the Holy Spirit to live inside you. God's plan to save those people and us including was not to use what man could provide. John's like, okay, I found some water. Okay, this is what I have. I can preach and I got water, right? And I can tell people we need to confess, you know, say you're sorry. But God's plan was not 
to do that. And John, he's wise enough and had the spirit enough to say, I get it. This is not God's plan. We're just getting ready for God's plan. Man providing and doing is the old way. The old covenant revolved around man's ability and efforts. Here, let's do this. Let's say this. Let's think this. Let's feel this. And all those things were the old way. But let's see what the next verse we're going to drill into. Immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the spirit descending on him like above, or from a, like a dove. Excuse me. Here we see that Jesus is filled with the, the living resource, the one sufficient resource that can actually transform a human being. The one thing that's able to actually forgive sin and change a sinner is the Holy Spirit. So God's plan was to use what he himself would provide. That's God's plan. And he would provide himself, his own spirit. This is the new way, the new covenant. And the new covenant revolves around God's ability and the Holy Spirit. Not around my efforts, but his ability. So we're going to skip forward now to Romans chapter 7, verse 6. And it says, But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. We, like I said at the beginning, the standard is, the law says, we are supposed to serve God. And today, that doesn't go away just because we're saved. We're supposed to serve God. But we do it the new way. Not the old way of, let me see what I can do. Let me give it my best shot. But the new way, which is through the anointing of the Holy Spirit. We have to die. What do we do with all the, the life that we had in us before? We have to die. Just like baptism pictures. You guys been to a baptism? You know what that is? Most of you have been baptized. We need to do a baptism soon. Um, just because it's a wonderful picture of this. We die to our own ways and our own abilities. That's what we die to. We turn our back on our own lives. We renounce all dependence on flesh and self. That's what that means when you were baptized. We, we die to all performance-based law-keeping. We die, then we rise and serve. We die to the flesh, but we serve in the spirit. For example, marriage can often be difficult. There can often be conflict. But as husbands, our command is to love your wife. Wives, honor your husbands. That's what God's standard is, and it's not changing, right? And my flesh, my flesh Think of this guy, okay? 
My flesh, if I don't die, my flesh, he wants to argue, to convince, to manipulate, or to force my way. That's what my flesh, that's all the plans it has. But I need to die to that whole philosophy it says that I was held by. I need to die to it. And I need to, it it, it was like holding me like handcuffs, like, how can I make her change unless I do these things? She's never going to change on her own. I got I to gotta be a jerk because that's how I get things done. That's how the flesh thinks. That's the logic the flesh uses. Instead, he says, this is what the gospel is. We die to that. Instead, we're going to choose to walk in the Spirit. And the Spirit's ways are like a dove. They're very clear. What are those fruits of the Spirit? What does the Spirit look like when you're walking in the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. This is what the Holy Spirit will give me if I will, will die to my way. The Holy Spirit will raise me up, strengthen me, and produce these fruits in my life when I ask him in humility and faith. And he says, I'm called to serve God in this way. Not, I'm going to try my best to love my wife. No. That's the old way. But I'm going to confess that I don't love my wife the way I should that I need a living resource. I need a new love in my heart every day. I need that. And so I'm going to call upon God and ask him to give me that living resource, the new love that I need for my wife, for my husband, for my kids, to serve God, to honor God. I'm going to die to my flesh. I'm going to try hard, but I'm going to live and serve God by the Spirit. John knew that water baptism would not fully save these people. But they needed, they needed it. Because what water baptism did is it helped people say, I renounce all self-sufficiency. I renounce it. I can't do this alone. I can't do it myself. God, I need you. So John's work was really, really important. His work was to help people understand they have to die to their flesh. And the Holy Spirit is what people really needed, but the Holy Spirit can only come and live in a holy place. Holy Spirit, holy place. Makes sense, right? The Holy Spirit can only live in a house that has no sin. We just got finished studying the book of Exodus for like 32 years. And it's (laughs) one thing we learned in there is that everything had to be cleansed of sin. There was blood sprinkled on this and water sprinkled on that. And all of it was a picture of cleansing and making a holy place where, where God could dwell. So if the Holy Spirit is going to dwell in us, then God had to do something with us first because we were dirty and we were sinful and we were not good enough for God's Spirit. And that's the work that the ox is going to accomplish. 
What kind of blood did they sprinkle on the tabernacle to cleanse it? The blood of an ox, right? Oh, so awesome. (laughs) This is why Jesus was such a great home for the Holy Spirit, because he was holy. That's why God was able to just send the Holy Spirit down. He said, you've earned it, child. You have no sin. I, I gladly will send my Holy Spirit to live among men, even if it's just you right now. But what about me? I need the sinless. I need to be sinless in order for the Spirit to live in me. And if that's true, then I am in trouble because I sinned yesterday. You know what? I sinned three times this morning. I'm just guessing. Probably way undersold myself. This is what's so amazing about Jesus. He makes us sinless so that we can be filled with the Spirit. He forgives our sin and truly makes us as if we've never sinned. And and if you've heard that a million times before today, just forget them all and hear it fresh with a new, just being blown away that that is the reality. That he truly has made you different than any other thing or place in this world. You are made holy. You are made clean by his sacrifice. God does not dwell in a temple anymore because there is no building that you could build that would be good enough for him. But he has cleansed you and made you good enough for his tabernacle. You are his home. And he doesn't cleanse you so that you can go and sin more. He will re-clean you up every day, but that's not the purpose that he saved you for. He saved you so that you could serve God with the Spirit like Jesus did. When Jesus said, I'm going to go away, You're going to be my hands and you're going to be my feet in this world. You're going to be the light of the world. I was the light of the world while I was here. Now you're going to be the light of the world. That is a big job. And we can't do it on our own. But Jesus says, I will fill you with the same thing that made me the light of the world. I'll give it to you. So the book of Mark is all about serving Jesus is seen as the perfect servant, the ox. And notice, though, that no one could serve God, not even Jesus, without the Spirit. Jesus didn't attempt to go start his ministry until he was filled with the Holy Spirit. It's so vitally important. God will be patient for us. He does want to use you to transform this society, to to save many people. He wants to do that. But more than that, he wants you to receive his life in you. And he says, don't go out and think you're going to do all this until you've spent time with me, until you are filled with my own life. We must have the Holy Spirit, guys. We must have the Holy Spirit. 
So how do I get the Holy Spirit? We have to die to ourselves. That's humility. I can't do it. And then we call upon God in faith. Ask God for it. If you are willing to say, I need your spirit, Jesus. That's the real desperate cry of your heart. And then you call out to him and say, Jesus, send me your spirit. He will always answer, yes. God will give the spirit. So, once you do that, once you say, God, I need you, God, give me your spirit. Here's the, here's the secret, I don't know, ingredient, I don't know, whatever. You just take a step. Having confidence that God is going to do all the stuff he said he would do. Just take that step. You, how will you know if God filled you with the Spirit? Unless you take the step. God, my wife is crazy. My husband is awful. So I need your, I, I'm going to do your will. I want you tell me I got to love him. I got to serve him. I, I want to do that, but I can't. So I'm going to die to myself. I can't do it. But I'm going to ask you for your Holy Spirit. And then walk into the room with your stinking husband to love him. Say a loving word. Give him a kiss on the forehead. Whatever you think is loving, the Spirit will lead you. The Spirit will equip you. That is the practical way that this Holy Spirit thing works. He says, take that step of faith. All right? Our last verse we're going to look at is 2 Corinthians 3, 4. Now we have such trust through Christ towards God. You have to trust Christ, Okay? Not that we're sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God who made us sufficient as ministers. And that word minister is the same as servants, right? Ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So just as we close, I want you to remember that image of baptism. Baptism is about killing and then living, killing my dependence on self, living in dependence on God. That makes sense. All right, we're done. We're gonna do. A, we're gonna. Uh, I'm leaving tonight to go to Haiti with Jesus and Lindsay. Could you come up here, Lindsay? And Jesus, come up here too. And uh, um, BK and Nathan or, and. Paul, Paul says, BK, Nathan, if you guys could come up here and, and these guys are going to pray for us.